Hi, welcome to the second Metaco Talks. Uh, I'm Seamus Donia, the VP of Sales and Business Development in Metaco. Uh, we will be holding these talks every two weeks on Fridays. The next one is on January 8th at 10.30 with my, Michelle Rausch, a, a research affiliate from the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, who's going to talk about the broader economic and geopolitical implications of decentralized finance. The recordings can be found on our website. Tell your friends, share them, please. And I, one comment, this is a live conversation. It's interactive. We have the, the chat comments open, so please comment and ask questions. Let's kick off. A lot's happened in the last week. Uh, we've had Northern Trust, BBVA, DBS, Mass Mutual, just a few of the, the companies that made crypto announcements. And for a narrative-driven market like crypto, the institutionalization of the market seems to be accelerating and, seem, and is clearly pretending for a big 2021. Uh, for this Mentaco Talks, I'm pleased to welcome Sal Janello, who leads the crypto practice at KPMG to this week's this week's talk. Welcome, Sal. Thanks, Amos. Appreciate it. Happy to be here. Great. Thanks. And I mean, given your thought leadership in this space, we have we potentially have a lot of ground to cover. So why don't we kick off with an introduction, your background, your role at KPMG, and uh, you know why your firm, you know, amongst your peers, is the one that's focused on crypto, while others are still seem to be prioritizing things like permission ledgers. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks to everyone for taking the time this morning. Um, so as Seamus mentioned, my name is Sal Tornello, um, a director and co-lead of our work around crypto at KPMG. Um, my career started in institutional finance at State Street um, in technology audit and cybersecurity. Um, but my passion for crypto started long before my career when I was actually at university still mining in my college dorm room in 2013, early 2013 and, and ultimately ended. But um, my, the intersection between that passion hobby and my career at State Street became real in 2016 um, as we started to experiment with early implementations of permission protocols like Fabric, uh, Chain.com at the time, um, and some Corda experimentation as well. And you know, in parallel to that, I was seeing the crypto ecosystem kind of blossom as you know Ethereum was coming to rise and. I was also seeing very clearly the progress or lack of progress that was being made towards maturity of these protocols and you know progress towards productionalization of secure reliant performant business applications and ultimately after a great experience at state street decided to go to market and spend my time and focus 100 percent on crypto um, and as i went to market i knew i wanted a platform to stand on and learn more um, and so consulting seemed like the right step and as I interviewed with a number of the large consulting firms, including the big four and, and some of our other competitors in BCG and McKinsey, KPMG was the only firm that had been leaning into crypto and had been in the space actively deploying largely traditional consulting services around SOC report readiness and AML compliance, enterprise architecture, um, things that we've done for large financial institutions for many years. Um, and so that platform and early experience that KPMG had pulled me in um, and I'm thrilled I joined. I've been with, with the firm for two and a half years now alongside Sam Weiner, who co-leads the work here. Um, and we've been uh, you know, growing our business significantly. We've been digital assets and crypto first for this five-year period now. Um, and I think that the point you made in, in closing is it's a relatively unique point of view in this space and the consulting side in that there's been a lot of focus and build on permission blockchains. And we've kind of had this, this perspective that there will be convergence of permissionless and permission protocols and securing and protecting the tokens or, or crypto assets that power the networks themselves. Um, really this custody challenge would, would be the core of transformation. And so 
we focused a lot of time in the space. Happy to be with, with you and the team today um, and share a bit more about what we're seeing in the market and uh, what our perspective is moving forward. Well, I mean, it's great background and uh, it's great to have you here. No, I mean, I think, you know, we obviously, having been in the market a little while, you know, you've seen, we've gone through the cycle in 2016 through to 2018, where it was really a, a retail phenomenon. And I think we, we often describe this as it wasn't a unique cycle, this boom, this boom and then bust. Um, and now this recovery, it's really following a traditional sort of technology cycle, like the Gartner hype cycle. And it seems as we come into this next stage, it's really not about retail anymore. It's about the past since 2018, we've been building institu institutional infrastructure. Initially, the kind of the pioneers like Fidelities of the world, Abigail Johnson and Avalok, these type, of, these type of companies that built it long before. It was really a commercially viable business to justify that sort of investment. But now it seems, as we've talked at the start, there's, there's daily announcements around institutions joining this space. Um, so no question, the permission space started as institutional, but now it seems the public public space is you know is on an onward and very sort of accelerating march towards institutions institutionalization. I mean, what do you think are the key drivers of that institutionalization from your from your point of view? Yeah, I think a lot of it centers on on what you and an organizations like Pataco have done over the past two and a half years in terms of maturing the third party product technology landscape to meet tier one institutional enterprise requirements, um, and so. We put out this viewpoint in 2018 as a white paper around the institutionalization of crypto assets, basically projecting from our financial services experience, operating with you know, global banks under different licensing structures and regulatory remits. You know, what does it look like on a forward basis in order for us to think about how to apply those same concepts, theories, and controls into kind of a crypto space to institutionalize? Um, and so I think there's really been two core drivers. The first has been that the maturation of the product technology. And then the second piece is around the regulatory landscape, which, you know, in 2020, we've seen significant progress um, in terms of clarity being defined for major jurisdictions like the U.S. Um, the OCC guidance around custody um, has been continued to be a contentious topic in the, in the U.S. legislative bodies. But um, the guidance that Brian Brooks provided in looking at both crypto and Bitcoin as as custody within the OCC, um, and then also the viewpoint on stablecoin collateral, um, really put a big step forward. And I think, you know, that regulatory clarity will continue into 2021. Um, Hester Pierce has put out a bunch of, you know, pretty strong viewpoints in terms of how she thinks the regulatory environment from the SEC perspective may evolve um, with things like FinHub realigning directly to uh, the chair of the SEC. So I think those two dynamics will cause kind of the, right, have set the stage for real institutional adoption. And that's what we've seen over the past you know, eight to 12 weeks as the treasury play has become real for private and public companies. Um, and you've seen major announcements like those that you just mentioned with DBS, BBV and others. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, we very much, I mean, our own business, as you described, we've seen a lot of the large institutions get in, particularly in those jurisdictions where there is regulatory clarity. So there's no question, regulatory clarity, basically a clear taxonomy or, or basically a licensing regime, if that's, if that's needed, or just clarity around what they are allowed to do or not allowed to do, really sets the stage. And, you know, clearly places like, you know, Singapore, Switzerland, Germany, we've seen tremendous traction precisely because of the regulatory frameworks have, are there and are, have are been explicit about supporting the banks moving the space. Um, you know, one of the issues we do hear, though, that banks, if the regulatory barriers are following, falling, sorry, 
there's still the issue about how they build the business case. So there's a lot of things you can do in the crypto or tokenization space. How do you see the banks that you, you speak to, uh, how do they see the opportunity? How do they build the business case to get in here? And what, what's the focus? Yeah, so I mean, the, the focus, in, and I think we've seen alignment over the past probably nine months in terms of focus on permissionless blockchains and what that means for these large financial institutions. And to your point, the, the investments that were made in 2017 into these large institutional custody businesses may have been before the market, you know, business case type opportunities would present themselves in a way that you could sell them to a management committee. Um, but now we're facing kind of two, a, a two dimensional um, dynamic, one of which is the fact that the business case reality is, is real. And that if you look at asset valuations on a forward basis and think about even just the custody fee generation on, on assets at a trillion dollars, it's worthwhile. And then the flip side of that coin is if these services are not made available to asset managers that are moving into the space, like BlackRock and, and all these other major institutions, um, you're going to see a dislocation from preferred custodial providers to custodial providers that can offer these types of services. Um, and in some circumstances, you're seeing, like the Northern Trust move, um, you know, the ability to offer that one-stop shop seamless client experience across asset types. Um, and I think that's a trend that we'll continue to see play out. And now the threat of like the cannibalistic dynamic is here. Um, and so I think that the movement will continue to gain groundswell um, and not slow down. Yeah, I mean, to your point, we've definitely seen a lot of interest in the idea that a single stack to basically support either permission or public, you know, ledger agnostic sort of infrastructure is definitely a key foundation. I mean, you know, clearly I think, uh, you know, the, the tar target stack at banks needs to be still be built out in many cases. I mean, how do you see that target stack? And I know that uh, KPMG recently announced a new offering, a new, I guess, crypto, crypto infrastructure offering called Chain Fusion. Can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on the, the stack side, I think, you know, when we looked at this and, and have, have kind of formed our point of view, there's really two core challenges that are fundamentally different as it relates to interaction with public blockchains. The first of which is solving the data challenge around interacting with layer one network data that comes in different types of data formats and structures and requires different types of data pipelines, processing, indexing, in order to make sense of that in context of a business. And then there's this whole idea of that data problem and understanding risks related to financial services for AML. So the world of cipher traces and chain analysis and elliptics. Okay. And so there's this world of data that you've got to master in terms of transactional information, risk indicators, market data, reference rates around this whole new market segment, right? Um, and then there's this other challenge, custody, which is fundamentally the idea of managing cryptographic key material in a digital signature key pair. And we've seen significant transformation of custody as well. So those two core components are kind of the net new nuances that we think about as you know, requirements in terms of the technology stack. And those are integrated into a broader viewpoint across what serves the front, middle, and back office from an existing enterprise application perspective. So those capabilities and how they integrate into core banking systems um, how they integrate into existing legacy custody applications and or um, adjacent information services for enterprise risk management, compliance, and internal audit um, is a, a key piece of how this stack builds up to actually operate in a regulated environment. And that's exactly what Chain Fusion is designed to do, is, is to support those second and third line of defense functions um, in, in kind of performing 
you know, the, the enterprise technology risk management functions that you'd expect over this type of infrastructure um, and doing that in a, a seamless way. So I'm happy to dive a bit deeper into chain fusion, but at the core of what we've done, we've created a, a data integration architecture across these unique challenges of data and custody. Um, and we're serving that data to different enterprise functions, largely in the risk and compliance space. Interesting. I mean, there's, there's one question that we just received in the chat. I mean, how do you, how do you track the ecosystem? I mean, it's clearly a space that's moving very quickly and how do you get, how do you not get lost in basically what's happening? Yeah, so we're fortunate that we have a team in the U.S. of a dedicated 12 um, that are full-time crypto digital assets, either building chain fusion or full-time serving clients in the market. Um, and that's part of a broader network of upwards of 70 globally that are full-time crypto digital assets experts. And so the nature and design of KPMG as a limited partnership with member firms operating in different jurisdictions lends itself very well to have crypto experts who are also regulatory experts in those target jurisdictions. And so we spend a lot of time as a firm collaborating across our member firms to one, create consistent viewpoints in terms of regulatory technology, product landscape, competitive movements. Um, but also on the flip side of that, to bring those insights into our technology development in chain fusion, and then to use our development engine in the US to then build and deliver to our global member firms and help to differentiate our, you know, our other peers and colleagues as they're going to market in other regions. Um, so it's, it's a, it's not something that I, I think can be done on an individual basis at this point in time, given the pace. Um, but there are a ton of great resources out there that help to streamline some of the noise. Um, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about those. I'd be interested, Seamus, in hearing, you know, from your perspective, what your uh, what your take is on on keeping track of of the space and how you guys look at that, not being a consulting firm. Yeah, well, it's not easy. I mean, I think you know things happen very quickly in the space. I mean, we're a company that our, our main product has been around since 2018, which is not very long in traditional technology, but it seems to be, I guess this puts us down as an OG in the space from a from an infrastructure, institutional infrastructure space. So yeah, it's, it's moving very quick. I mean, we look at, I think for us, we're fortunate that we, from the start, we've had institutional investors, you know, some of the larger blue chips in Switzerland and now also um, internationally. And our clients that have from the start have been banks. So given our products really designed for banks, our clients really inform us on kind of, let's say, the roadmap and the journey of where, where we're going. So collectively, I think from our clients, we can build a vision of where that space is, given that that's who we'll ultimately have to serve. So I think really, as, as we work with more different types of banks, I think we worked with private banks, we've worked with security services type banks, retail banks, universal banks, and that's really given us many different use cases and really helped us build a product so it can service the, the broader financial you know, infrastructure space. Um, you know, you touched early on a question about, and this is something that comes up a lot about the business case, that even on the revenues around custody alone, that you potentially, there's a trillion, you mentioned trillion dollars in assets, you could basically have a, a feasible business model. Do you see, for those banks that, let's say, don't, don't want to start with custody around crypto, how do they build the business case looking at tokenized assets, given that that market is, that overall, you can characterize that market is still, let's say, very nascent, there's very fragmented liquidity. Um, the quality of issuers is, you know, maybe improving, but still really not, uh, it's really not, let's say, investment grade that, as we commonly know it in the traditional space. Yeah, a couple pieces there. So I think our view on custody, there are revenue generating opportunities today. 
but our viewpoint of what qualified custody and custody was in a, as a regulatory construct is fundamentally different from what it is today as a technology and a core infrastructure and tech ops capability. Um, and so there will be a point in the future where custody is, um, I believe, and I think our firm does that, custody will be largely propagated across a number of participants in these decentralized systems. And it's likely that it will be viewed as a core capability and overhead cost to operate on a forward basis. And so um, there are in the in the short to medium term opportunities for upside revenue generation on custody. We see that it's a super competitive segment. Um, but the higher value opportunities around the prime stack, which has been in the spotlight over the past six months, um, are really where the revenue generation is coming from. And then the point made on tokenization as well is that there are opportunities there. And in a similar way that we've seen third-party product technology mature for custody and data over the last several years, we're starting to see the players and the technology and kind of the, the learnings of what are the constraints from a regulatory perspective on tokenization? How do these new systems actually interact with you know, broader investor bases to drive real liquidity and market depth? Um, and so I think, you know, although the hype was really big in 2018 on, on security tokenization and broader asset tokenization, I think we've learned a lot the last two years. And I do expect those to be revenue generating opportunities and more importantly, optimization of, of operating costs of how these things are done today. And there's a bunch of really great use cases in the market where that cost efficiency play has been proven and repeated a number of times now. Um, so I think those use cases and specific applications will be um, something that will will definitely continue. Interesting. Well, I mean, you're, the first part of that you really you touched on, kind of like the, the market landscape, the market structure in terms of participants. You know, right now we've got a, a um, let's say in the custody space, the security services where the space is really dominated by you know Baymoth, uh, huge organizations in the space. How do you think? How how do you view that landscape evolving with you know digital natives and uh, digital native firms that have been in the space for a while building capabilities, and those type of banks getting into the space now? Yeah, it's it's interesting, and I think like there's some there's obviously a lot to be determined in terms of how this plays out in the nationally chartered banking space, especially with just recent clarity in the U.S. Um, but we've seen moves in Switzerland and Germany that have both been kind of indicative of what we anticipate to happen. Um, and so I think that there's there's likely going to be an increased, um, a, a lot more organizations will have internal custody capabilities than what we would have thought of in a traditional financial services context. But I think, again, there's gonna be a viewpoint of qualified custodianship and what that means in the eyes of different regulators. And that will include a custody capability at the foundation of it. And then there will be this whole world of custody that is a core capability that underpins a number of different businesses. And so it's 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 sometimes a little bit muddied in terms of how traditionally the world of institutional custody was viewed it what like what it was versus what we talk about custody today as. Well, how do you think things like subcustody fits into that? I mean, you mentioned that this could be uh, effectively strategic for almost anybody. I mean, will firms do they start with subcustody as just a, as the business case is emergent, or does everyone need need the tech stack eventually to manage this themselves? I think it, there's a number of different factors that come into that decision point, um, and there's some organizations that lend themselves more effectively to internalize that type of capability and run a tech ops model around it. 
So organizations in the payment processing space that have skilled workforces around public key infrastructure and maintaining those things um, are more likely to have the right types of, of resources to re-augment and deploy something inside their organization. Um, but we are definitely seeing the first step for a lot of organizations being the sub-custody model. And it creates both kind of a, a separation from um, some of the risks related to these net new operations and nuances around them that they may not be as familiar with. Um, and so I think in many circumstances, and especially where there are conservative perspectives at the management committee and board level of specific organizations, that they may pursue a sub-model first. Um, but I think it's it's variable, again, based on a number of factors, which is the most consulting answer ever. But I think there, there really are, uh, there's a large variance in the decision-making, a lot of rationale in ter terms of why. Yeah, I mean, on, on our side, we, we typically, at least from the bank's perspective, given that's who we speak to, we see some of the banks, when they're, they're still uncertain about the business model, they like to externalize with a sub-custodian. But they really view that as a kind of a tactical initiative to validate business demand. The longer term, I think there still is a, an interest to this is kind of the, the, the core foundation of whatever you're going to do in the space, because obviously custody is one element, but it's what you build on top of it, that, that, that digital, the digital offering that's going to emerge and potentially as we move more and more the CFI and the DeFi or basically into the, into let's say a, a tokenized blockchain space, you need to, a, you need, you need to manage private keys basically run. Right? Um, so within that, the contest, I mean, DeFi is obviously something very sexy. I mean, how, how do you think is a lot, a lot happening? It's, it's been boom bust in this space and multiple times. It seems there's always some new, new, new food group that's being traded. Um, what, what do you, how do you think, <laughs> how, how would you kind of address that from an institutional perspective? Is this something that's near term? Is it something to learn from in terms of future path? I mean, what is it exactly from your perspective? I think you hit on that in the last point there in terms of like learning from this for the, for the future path and the institutional side. Um, so DeFi is obviously exceptionally exciting, um, I think is kind of the next proving point of promise of, of kind of moving beyond these base use cases of layer one instruments and the protocols they support to, um, you know, really think about how the the financial market infrastructure might evolve over time and how some of these centralized institutions whose business is built on borrowing and lending may look at how DeFi architectures and infrastructure may completely transform how they operate as a business today. And so we're putting out a perspective in, in 2021 in terms of this idea of bridging the DeFi CFI gap and taking some of the learnings around decentralized financial infrastructure and building more centralized, regulated financial products. Um, and I think that that movement is the result of things like what you've seen in the US around non-custodial wallets over the past six weeks. Um, and there's real ambiguity in terms of how you perform administration of assets that trade or interact in DeFi applications, how you perform tax accounting around them and or any type of like fund required reporting to investors. Um, and then there's this whole area of cybersecurity and the idea that any of these DeFi smart contracts are inherently exposed to software vulnerabilities and risks related to them. Um, and I mean, the DeFi community is super resilient and hats off, but um, in any other like, financial market where the amount of compromises and key man risk events that have occurred over the past couple months, uh, they just probably wouldn't survive. But I think 
it's a it's in the spirit of innovation and resilience and, and the, the DeFi community has both of those things going for them. So I, I think lots of innovation on the DeFi side, a gap and bridge to the CFI world soon. Um, but we're excited to see what comes of that. How, how are you guys thinking about DeFi? Well, I mean, I, I, I would characterize it the same way. It definitely seems to be a space that's uh, all about move fast and break things, you know, in the, in the sake of experiment, basically, right? But um, yeah, I think it's it's an exciting space. There's no question moving, you know, moving moving the infrastructure on chain and uh, this whole concept of, you know, building blocks, you know, composability, et cetera, in the space definitely seems to be something that uh, really could radically invent markets. But I think from our, our client perspective, it's really, they're taking tentative steps. Obviously, they're all looking at uh, things like stable coins, um, yield, yield around, let's say, staking, obviously a, a very topical thing now that ETH2 is out. Um, these are all things that uh, I think are going to be near term, a lot of focus and how, where it goes from there, I think really is, as you say, some of these experiments reach some point of uh, critical, critical stability, let's say, and traction. And, uh, and I think those will be gradually adopted. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Um, things, talking about stable coins, you mentioned some of the regs there. What's your, what's your view on how things are evolving in the stable coin space? It's grown very rapidly this year. I think basically numbers, something like, you know, 5 billion at the start of this year to over 20 billion now. 25, some yeah. 25 right i mean can't keep up with the space it's growing i mean usdc has done some exciting things with uh with, with with visa for example um you know the stuff that happened in venezuela um how do you see that evolving particularly in light of some of the the regs that are coming down out of the us yeah so it's a super interesting conversation and it's one that's in, like inter inter twined to some extent with the central bank digital currency discussion in many ways because the, the concerns from the regulatory perspective that you've seen aired over the past couple of weeks come down to the impacts of potentially, um, you know, less regulated M1 issuance of supply. And so there's concerns around how you effectuate monetary policy, how you oversee, regulate um, activities in that space. And so that's what some of the concerns have come from. I don't think in any way it's going to slow down the growth. I think it's going to push regulators to define exactly how they want to treat um, this and have a consistent and harmonized view across those regulatory bodies. Um, and I think the, the, the viewpoint of what USDC has done with Visa is significant. Um, there's this whole world, and we kind of look at the stablecoin world in, in two, two dynamics. One is there's this whole world of neutral third-party payment processors who are designed as these trust agents to facilitate payment execution. And then there's this world of stable coins being issued by banking institutions who are inherently biased or to some extent impacted by their commercial financial banking activities or retail banking activities. And so there is going to be, in my mind, some, some alignment in terms of what is the right regulatory structure to facilitate um, stable coin issuance. And I think the OCC guidelines, although contested over the past couple of weeks, um, really set the foundation for that. So I think continued growth in stablecoin adoption, I think continued application in both domestic and cross-border payments. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's evident now that private sector innovation will drive the public forward in terms of central bank digital currency. Um, and, you know, the, the former CFTC chairman, um, Giancarlo, was the biggest champion of this. Um, and I think he's spot on with it because you know, the U.S. not moving in 2015 to do this, put them in a position where now today they, they need to look to the private sector to learn and to move fast. I mean, how, how do you think basically things like the Stable Act, I mean, basically the talk that basically 
stablecoin issuers potentially need to be registered with banks. Is this just a misunderstanding of, of what the market is actually all about? Yeah, so I, I think there's there's definitely a, there's a continued gap um, in terms of making sure that everybody has the right understandings um, in terms of what are the real risks and then what is the best way to manage those risks and supervise and oversee them. Um, and so I, I don't know, and I'm not going to project what I think the right regulatory structure is, um, but I, I think there will be probably a small step back from where that perspective is in terms of, you know, having a Fed master account or having a bank at the bank account at the central bank um, to thinking about how either the types of organizations that have accounts at the central bank expand and or they reduce the requirement to say that. And they say, you know, you can still do this if you're if you're not a nationally chartered bank with an account at the central bank. Um, so. You know, a lot more discussions to be had on that front. I'm interested in your perspective as well, um, but still super, super new. And and hopefully uh, I'll have a better view maybe in January. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, our view is definitely, I think some, some of what we hear in the market sounds a bit heavy handed. Obviously, there's talk that, uh, you know, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin may kind of tack on some last minute, last minute uh, regs before he leaves office. Um, but uh, I think from a broader perspective, I think regulation is really a core part of the institutionalization of the market. I mean, the regs enable the banks and other institutions to come into the market. And I think that's good for everybody in the space. Um, we're, running, we're running a bit, bit low in time. So I think just maybe to wrap things up, I know that, uh, you know, KPMG puts out annual predictions for the next year, for 2021, for example. <laughs> love to, I love it if, you know, if you, you're here. So I'm going to ask you the question, are you able to give us any preview of uh, what's, what's coming out of that? Yeah, I can give you, I'll give you two. So <laughs> the first one, I think, echoes a conversation that Hester Peirce had yesterday in terms of the SEC in the US and the exchange traded fund discussion. Um, and her perspective forms the basis for my prediction, which is that we will likely see an empowerment of FinHub to re reporting directly to the chair of the SEC um, in a way that paves progress towards an ETF in the US, I think. What you're seeing with 3IQ in Canada has created a lot of learnings for how the U.S. might approach it. Hester, Hester Peirce's comment yesterday was that the way in which we've approached these ETFs for or ETPs for um, crypto is fundamentally different from how we've approached other assets in the past. Um, so I think that that will set the stage for, you know, we want to have ex investors have access to, you know, exposure to these assets, but we want to do that in a way that we understand um, in a way that we understand the regulatory and supervisory approach around. Um, and so I think, you know, we'll look to see progress on that front in 2021 and hopefully movement. Um, and then the other area that is not necessarily surprising to anyone at this point, but is the whole space of central bank digital currency. Um, and I think, you know, we see a significant and bright future for the CBDC space. And I think a lot of competitive pressures in ways that um, maybe are unfamiliar to central banks. And so um, what was really a, kind of a, a hype cycle maybe for 2015, 16, 17 around CBDC is real now um, and excited to see where it takes us. So I think those are two things we'll definitely see on the agenda and, and kind of point of view um, as we put out our 2021 predictions. Sounds exciting. Definitely big news. And, you know, I look forward to hearing, seeing the rest of the report. I mean, Sal, it's been great to have you here. I'm sure, sorry, we don't have any more time to talk. I think we talked for a while. So um, just to wrap up, how can people, you know, how, how can people reach out and get a hold of you? 
Yeah, absolutely. My my LinkedIn is Sal Trinello. Uh, feel free to reach out and shoot me a message. Um, and my email is strinello at kpmg.com. So feel free to reach out that way. And appreciate everyone taking the time this morning. Seamus, thank you for having me um, and look forward to continued collaboration. Likewise. Thanks, Sal. So just wrapping up, uh, next, obviously Christmas season's coming up. The next event, uh, next Mintaco Talks will be January 8th with uh, Michelle Rausch, as I mentioned earlier, from the, the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance. He's going to talk about the broader economic and geopolitical implications of decentralized finance and look forward to having you there. So thanks again for joining. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Happy holidays. See you in Jan. Thank you.